0: Well, good morning, New Heights. Everybody watching online, I am excited to preach this morning. Seriously, the presence of God is in this place. I am just like, wow, let's go. This message this morning, I I just feel like this wasn't actually in my notes. I just had this coming to me as I was sitting here worshiping this morning. But Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. And it's easy in these days we live in to be conformed to the pattern of this world. But it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I feel like that's going to happen this morning. I'm just feeling like strongholds are coming down. I just see this picture of just like a big holy weed eater just whacking weeds down. I just, that's how I feel. So get ready. <laughs> All right. So um, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. As you're getting there. I'm going to do a little bit of review because Lee Epstein did an incredible job last week opening our new series for us called The Questions. It was such a good message last week. If you missed it, I encourage you to go online and, and check that out. And Lee talked to us about what it actually looks like to follow Jesus and how when we do, we experience rich relationship, profound purpose in the kingdom. It's the good life that God intends for us to experience. And some of the scripture that Lee took us to was this story in Luke 18 of the rich young ruler. And that's actually where I want to start off this morning. So if you're there, let's, let's read together Luke 18, verses 18 and 19. It says, a certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Now, most of the time when we, we get into this story of the rich young ruler, what we'll do is we'll focus on, on this guy's heart, the condition of his heart, and that his heart was really just full of idols of money and stuff, and he wrestled with that, and then there's this call of Jesus to come and follow and be a disciple, and usually that's what we focus on in this story, but what I want to focus on this morning is that word, good. Good. It shows up three different times in these first two verses. And, and you read this, and it's like, what's going on here, right? There's like this back and forth with this guy and Jesus. And you go, what's happening below the surface? Like, is this guy trying to butter Jesus up somehow? Or, or does he actually recognize that Jesus is God? And so, so we're not sure exactly what's going on in this guy's heart. But there's one thing that's clear. And it's so clear in verse 19 that it's God and God alone who is good. He is good. He is a good, good father. It's who he is. Amen? It's who he is. And, and so he is the source of all good. And because of that, he gets to define what is good and what is not And that's going to be our topic in this questions series this morning. So let me welcome us back to our new series called The Questions, where what we are doing is we were look, we're looking at what it, what it means to faithfully follow Jesus in our post Christian culture. And this morning, the particular question that we're going to be looking at is this. Can't we just be good without God? And, and this is what our society today is pushing for. And and when I got assigned to this question, I started to think about it, and I'm like, wait a minute, there are questions within this question, right? It's like, is there even such a thing as good and evil? And shouldn't we all maybe just get to decide what those things are for ourselves, right? And and if if that's not the case, then who gets to decide? Like who's the authority on what is good and what is not, and who is the good person, and what is the good life? So those are good questions, aren't they? So that's where we're going this morning. And what we're going to do to answer these questions is we're going to look at, at how societies in, the, in our past history, those that have been enlightened, so to speak, how they have sought to answer these questions. And then we're going to look at how modern thinkers today are trying to answer these questions. And here's the thing. I, I just can't make any apologies for this. This is going to be a thinking message. Is it okay if you do some thinking this morning? Is that okay? Can I ask you to do that? Are you with me? Okay, we, we've, we've got to do some thinking here this morning, um, but here's the thing. I do believe that this is a message that is going to speak to hearts and minds, and like I said, I believe strongholds are going to come down, and there's going to be some application at the end and some time for us to reflect and ask the question, how am I deciding in my life and in my choices what is Good. And so to answer this question right off the bat, what I need to do is I need to go all the way back to the beginning to where this question actually first arises. And where we see it, the Bible tells us that this was the issue in the garden with our first parents, Adam and Eve. And in that, in that story, in the first chapters of Genesis, we were introduced to this, this tree. And it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this tree, actually, if you ate of this tree, what it would do is it would open your eyes and it would give you understanding of what is good and what is not. And you would see those things and understand them like God understands them. And this tree represented a test. It was a test for humanity. Would humanity trust God to be the source of defining what is good? And would they learn from God what is good in the context of an intimate relationship with him and trust him to be the one who told them what is good and what is evil? That was the choice. Or they could choose to go their own way and choose autonomy and be the ones that, that said, we have the authority to say what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is evil. And so In that test, that ancient serpent, the devil, shows up. And what he does is he whispers to Eve, and he says, you know what? God's holding out on you. He's holding out on you, and and here's the reality. He's not really good in that. So what you need to do is you should take matters into your own hands. Check out what he says to Eve. Genesis 3, verse 5 says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And you guys, this is the crux of the matter uh, that we're looking at today. And what happens is Adam and Eve, they buy this lie, they turn away from God. And what we see throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over, is that this tragedy played out. And there were times where humanity actually said, you know what, we're going to trust God. We're going to follow his good commands. We're going to follow his good instructions. And when humans did that, they flourished. But what we really see the majority of the time is that humans said, we're going to decide what's right, what's wrong for us, and tragedy is played out over and over. There's misery, there's chaos, there's brokenness, and it got so bad that we read this in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it said, says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That that was just how people were in society. They chose their own good. And here's how it played out. It played out in cultural lawlessness. And the fruit of that was generally things like rape and murder and pillaging, et cetera. Um, and, And so this was the tragedy that started to play out in history. And you might hear that and you might go, Kevin, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's really ancient history that you're talking about here. Surely, like, society has evolved, right? And, and surely people have gotten more enlightened, you know, like with the writings of Plato and Aristotle and the Pax Romana, you know, the Roman peace. Surely things got better, right? Surely society evolved to where everybody came to believe in the basics, the basics, you know, of, of what's good, that everybody started to agree that, you know, everybody should be treated as equal, and we should care for those who are suffering, and care for those who are marginalized, and we should love people who are different from us, and we shouldn't hurt anyone, right? The basics of morality. Surely people have always agreed on those things. Surely we agree on the basic moral principles that that we see What I want to do is I actually want to go back just a little bit, and I want to show how the most enlightened cultures of Jesus' day, right around that time, the Greeks and the Romans, I want you to, we're going to look at them for just a minute, and we're going to ask this question, did they get this, these basics of equal dignity and value? And here's what we see. It was not self-evident. It was not self-evident. You know what was evident to the Romans was that they had an appetite for gratuitous violence. (laughs) They actually would spend money and they would go to coliseums and stadiums wanting to see people die. They would watch gladiators fight to the death. Can you imagine going to a, a, a Razorbacks game or an NFL game and actually hoping that somebody would die? But this is where the culture was. They thought it was fun. And, you know, they didn't really care if these gladiators died because, well, they weren't you know our people they were slaves so nobody really cared about the value of their lives so you could watch them die and really in greek and roman thought here's what here's the deal it was free men who had the highest dignity and value and and they they were just over everything women children slaves this was how they defined that enlightened culture defined what was good and and then Disabled infants were just routinely disposed of. And actually, when you read Plato and Aristotle, you find that they supported direct eugenics. The latter writing this, let there be a law that no deformed child shall live. Unwanted newborn females were regularly left out on the streets to die. And so this was the culture that Jesus came into. And so if our ideas of good being people being treated with equal dignity and value, if it didn't come from the Greeks and the Romans, where did it come from? Is it more of a modern construct? Well, if you flash forward to more modern times, like the period of, let's say, the Enlightenment in Europe, all the way to the middle of the 20th century, what do you find globally? Well, what you find is you find the bloody revolutions of France and Russia, and the Russian Revolution, and you find genocide all over the world. And then you find a Hitler in Europe who led his people to believe we are destined to rule the world. And you go, where did they get that idea from? And Hitler was influenced by, by you know, different influences, one of them being Friedrich Nietzsche. If you're not familiar with him, uh uh let's yeah, pretty amazing mustache there. Um but this guy, if you're not familiar with his writings, he he basically said that man should express himself. And in that expression, we should have the right to, if we need to, impose our will on other people if we decide that that's what's best and that's what's right. And so Hitler borrowed from Nietzsche and also borrowed from the writings of Charles Darwin and had this idea that, that we are really just highly evolved monkeys, really no different from cows and pigs and tigers. And the world is a jungle after all. And so it just makes sense that, that the those that are at the top of the food chain, those that are the strongest animals should have the right to, to prey on the weak. And as the saying went in those days, might equals right. Meaning the strong have the right to rule and they can subjugate anyone that they want. And, and this brought about a Hitler who said, racism is good and we should eliminate the non-productive in society. So that's what we see when we start to look at just how different cultures and different times have tried to decide what is good. And, And here's the thing, if you just get down underneath it, I said, we're gonna have to think a little bit here. This actually is the moral outworking of atheism. And I know I have to make some caveats here because there are some really nice atheists out there who do a lot of nice things, so there's nuance here, but, but practically speaking, atheism does not provide the building blocks with which to build morality. And I want to give you a couple of examples of this. So in 2012, there was a Duke uh, philosophy professor. His name was Alex Rosenberg. You might be familiar with him, and he answered a series of questions from an atheist's perspective, and it was entitled The Atheist's Guide to reality. And what Dr. Rosenberg, how he answered is he answered these questions. Is there a God? No. What's the nature of reality? What physics says it is. What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Why should I be moral? Because it makes you feel better. Is there anything forbidden then? No. Anything goes. Anything goes. That's one example. I want to give you another one. Similarly, MIT professor and popular science writer Alan Lightman says this. We are a bunch of atoms, like trees and like donuts. So eat a donut or eat a child. Anything goes. Now, you might go. These, 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 wow! These are the extremes. But, but here's the thing: secular humanists like these guys and the new atheists. These are the questions that they're trying to address and give answers to in our culture, and they're on the talk shows, and their books are bestsellers, and they're pushing and asking this question: Can't we just be good and moral without bringing God into the equation? This is the push. And so what we see from ancient history all the way to modern history is that humans left to themselves have a terrible track record, right? And with careful study, what we actually find is that these values, these morals that we consider to be uh, in the Western world, most of us, we consider these to be universal. They didn't spring from the ground of the Enlightenment, Where they actually came from is they stepped into the world through a first-century Jewish rabbi who elevated women, valued children, loved the poor, and embraced the sick. The one who changed everything was Jesus Christ. He's the one who changed it all. He's the one who made all lives count. So our ideas of good and bad have been deeply shaped shaped by his teaching and his life. And if you cut Jesus out of the picture, then we stop having reasons to believe in these things. And we're going to look a little later at how some modern, actually non-religious historians, what they've had to say about the impact that Christianity has had upon the world. It's really fascinating to hear what they have to say. But first, here's what I want to do. Really, this is like, I want to highlight Jesus this morning. I want to put the spotlight on him and how he changed everything. And we have to understand that it's Jesus who made all lives count. And I want to show this in a number of ways. The first is I want to show you how he changed things when it came to babies and children. Because when parents, they brought their babies to Jesus, do you remember what happened? The disciples said, don't bother Jesus. He's too busy, right? He's too important to, to be messed with, with the kids. And Jesus said to his disciples, he's like, guy, guys, knock it off. And then he took the babies and he, and he embraced them and he held them in his arms and he blessed them. And then he showed value to children in these words, Matthew 19, 14. He said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to these. And in other places, he told adults, he said, you guys need to actually change and become like these little children and imitate their faith. So Jesus elevated children. And that's why you guys here at New Heights, I I love the time that we have been coming up here and talking about our children's ministry. It's why we value our babies and our children. And we care for the unborn because Jesus did. And to show how radical and countercultural Jesus' message was about childrens and babies in the Roman Empire, what I want to do is I actually want to tell a story. There, there's, this is the story of Dr. Paul Offit. He is a professor of pediatrics and vaccinology at the University of Pennsylvania. And And, and Dr. Offit had had some bad experiences, and so he'd made some conclusions. Basically, he had concluded that religion hindered morality. And so he began to write a book, called Bad Faith, How Religious Belief Undermines Modern Medicine. And so Dr. Offit, as a part of his research, he decided to read the accounts of Jesus. And as he read the Bible, and as he studied the history of modern medicine, he radically changed his mind. And when he saw Jesus' advocacy for children, it brought him to tears. And he wrote this, he concluded, you have to be impressed with Jesus of Nazareth. At the time of Jesus' life, around 4 BC to 30 AD, child abuse, as noted by one historian, was the crying vice of the Roman Empire. Infanticide was common. Abandonment was common. Children were, no, were property no different from slaves. Uh, Jesus stood up for children and cared about them, even when those around him typically didn't. And Dr. Offit now calls Christianity the single greatest breakthrough against child abuse in history, observing that, among other things, the first Christian emperor outlawed infanticide in 321. And then in 337, the emperor, he created a form of welfare so that poor families would not have to sell their children. So Jesus made the lives of babies and children count. And he also made the lives of the sick and the outcasts count. In Jesus' day, people had a disease called leprosy and they were considered to be outcasts, untouchable. But then we see Matthew 8 verses 2 and 3. It says, a man came with leprosy and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. Do you see the heart of God here? And he says, I'm willing be clean immediately. He was cleansed from his leprosy. So Jesus touched people that others wouldn't touch. He also touched and ministered to people with chronic illnesses and disabilities. So in addition to children, the sick and the outcasts had value. And then Jesus also showed value to people of different races and cultures. Different races and cultures mattered to Jesus. And and one of the things that we see in Jesus' life and his teaching is that he was a Jew in the first century. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They despised him. And, and you just weren't supposed to go anywhere near him. You weren't supposed to touch him or talk to him. And, and yet you see Jesus telling a story in Luke 10, where he says that the Samaritan is the moral hero of the story. And everybody was like, what? What are you talking about, Jesus? And then Jesus spends three days ministering in Samaria after his encounter with the woman at the well. And he spent three days teaching in the heart of their city. So Jesus elevated and showed value to people of different races and cultures. They mattered. And then in a male-dominated culture, Jesus elevated women. He elevated women. In that day when Jesus was, was teaching Most, if not all, of the Jewish rabbis, they refused to teach women at all. They wouldn't do it. And yet Jesus, what did he do? He taught women continually. And he commended Mary, the sister of Martha, for sitting at his feet, learning. And then what you also find is Jesus had this influential group of women who actually sometimes would travel with him and his disciples, and they would support them financially. And then who was it? that Jesus first appeared to when he came out of the tomb with the incredible news of his resurrection? It was a woman, it was Mary Magdalene. So Jesus cared about the value of women and then he also cared about the poor and the destitute. And over and over you see this in the gospels, Jesus caring for the poor and welcoming the poor and he tells a story where he elevates the value of the poor. There's a story in Luke 16, it's a story of a rich man and a poor beggar named Lazarus. And, and so you see this over and over, Jesus caring for the poor, teaching his disciples to care for the poor. And the Roman emperor, Julian, actually wrote a letter complaining about this. Emperor Julian wrote a letter complaining, and he goes, these Christians, not only do they care about other Christians who are poor, they care for people who aren't Christians who are poor. And the emperor goes, they're making all of our people who worship the Roman gods look bad. Last thing I'll mention that sets Jesus in his way apart from the culture around him, and frankly, it sets him apart from our culture today, is that Jesus taught us to show value even to our enemies. To our enemies. The people of Jesus' day, they had this saying. The saying was, love your friends and hate your enemies. And, and you guys, many people even today are living this out on our globe, right? And, and really, whether people know it or not, this is at the heart of cancel culture. It actually is. Cancel culture meaning, okay, I'm going to love you if you agree with me, 100%, if you agree with me and everything that I say, but if you don't agree with me, I'm going to cancel you and I'm going to vilify you. But what does Jesus say that is so radical and so countercultural? Here are his words, these earth-shattering words in Matthew 5, 43 and 44. Jesus said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy But I tell you, and I just want to pause here. When Jesus says this, when he says, you say these things, what he's saying is he's saying, you guys all have your notions of what is good and what is bad and what is right and what is wrong and how you think. But he says, I am the higher authority. I am the higher authority. He says, I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And you guys, this is not self-evident to humans, right? (laughs) This is supernatural. And Jesus taught that we should love and sacrifice even for people who hate us. And here's the thing, Jesus didn't just say it, he did it. When Romans, they nailed him to a cross, what does Jesus do? He says, Father, forgive them, forgive them. And God does this for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus didn't just die for his friends and for churchy people, amen? (laughs) He He sacrificed his life for rebels and God-haters and those who worshiped idols and for those who trample on his word and on his ways, and I was one of them. I was one of them. And I'm eternally grateful that God loves his enemies. This is really, really good news. Amen. Aren't you glad? Yes. And so Jesus changed everything as he came and he proclaimed what is good. And he demonstrated it and showed value to all. And here's the thing. The fact that Jesus changed everything and that we are still strongly living out the effects of his life and his teaching 2,000 years later is attested to by historians, both Christian and non-Christian. And I said I wanted to talk about a little bit of how the impact of Christianity and its spread around the world has been noted by historians. I wanna tell you about a couple. First, I wanna talk about a British historian named Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, okay? Not the, not the Spider-Man, Tom Holland. Uh, but the, uh, the historian, uh, Tom Holland. So Holland, the historian, uh, in his book entitled Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. In it, this non-Christian author writes, history shows us that our beliefs about right and wrong and equal value of all humans came to us from Christianity. And Holland, he's not the only non-Christian. To make this point, in 2014, historian Yuval Harari published a best-selling book called Sapiens, A Brief History of Mankind. And as someone who's speaking who doesn't believe in God, Harari says, human beings have no natural rights, just as spiders, hyenas, and chimpanzees have no natural rights, and he concludes that the idea that human beings are equally valuable and that there are even, there's even such a thing as human rights, he says, these ideas are just a fiction made up by Christianity. And so Harari doesn't believe in human rights and the value of people, but he clearly points to and says, Christianity is the source of these beliefs. And so not only do historians point to Christianity as the source and understanding of what is good, but other religions actually do this as well in in kind of a roundabout way. And I I, want to say this, you guys, there is some overlap between the moral teachings of different religions, but we have to understand this, different religions teach different things when it comes to what is good. And so, for example, in 1948, there was an international committee that published what was known as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And this was meant to be a moral code that people from all different religions could agree to uphold, but some majority Muslim countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia, they refused to agree with it. And they complained that this declaration was, quote, a secular understanding of Judeo-Christian tradition that cannot be implemented by Muslims because it violates Islamic law. So again, People from different religions teach different things on the values and treatments of all people. Okay, I just covered a lot. <laughs> Basically, the history of the world uh, and morality. Are you okay? Are you, are you still with me, all right? I said we're going to think about some things this morning. I know it's a lot. But before I go on, I, I just want to stop and say, I hope that as you hear these things, that there's a confidence growing in you that there's an encouragement that's growing in you this morning that Jesus actually changed everything and that your confidence is in him that everything rests on his shoulders as it should, amen? So now what I wanna do is I wanna bring us full circle and I wanna just look again and answer this question uh, that we're trying to define this morning is can't we all just decide for ourselves what is good without God? And so when it comes to answering this question, there are two roads that emerge. And I'm just going to simplify the conversation. I understand there's nuance, but Jesus talked about two roads, two ways that that humanity can go in Matthew chapter seven. And he said these two roads, one of them is very well-traveled. It's been well-traveled by humanity throughout history. And he said, then there's another road and it's his road. It's his way. And he said, there's two end destinations, one of them being destruction and one of them being life, life full and abundant. And so I wanna talk about this first road, this way that you can choose to go. And it's the road that the secular humanists and the modern atheists want us to go. And it's to believe that there actually is no God. That there is no God, no higher authority to tell us what is right and what is not. And they say that the final authority on what is good is us. It's us. And it's how we feel, think things should go. And so we are the final authority to consider whether it's good to eat a donut or eat a kid. We're we're the ones that get to decide. And so on that road, it's humans who are in charge So I'll say this, it's leaders, those who are leaders, they get to decide what's good and call good, or it's mass consensus of what is good, meaning mass consensus is it's just what the majority of the people in the culture say. If the majority agrees on it, that's what we're going to say is good. And so this is a road that you can go down. And here's the thing, this road sounds really good and enticing to a lot of people in society sounds really good, but we have to remember what comes with it. If there is no God, this is what comes with it. If there is no God, and you and I, we're just bags of cells and waste with an expiration date. If that's just all we are, then there really is no such thing as right and wrong, good and bad. Ultimately, it's just my opinion against yours. It's moral relativism. That's what we're left with. And so when atheist author Richard Dawkins looks at this world, he sees it exactly as he would expect it to see. Here's what he writes. If there is at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, we have nothing left but blind, pitiless indifference. And so he says, this is the brave new road that we need to just walk in. This is this is the reality we have to live in. And if he's right and there is no God, then human beings have no more value than spiders, hyenas, and chimpanzees. And in this new world, the late atheist intellectual Christopher Hitchens declared this. He said, how do I know that there are such things as human rights? I don't. Our grounding for human rights is about as tenuous as our position as a primate species on a rather dodgy planet. So you can choose to go down this road and just go, we get to decide. You can, you can go just like in the garden in Genesis 3. You can go, we're going to take matters into our own hands, and we're going to do this, and, and we're going to follow this way. And, and Jesus says, many, many will. But when it comes to going down this road, I want to tell you guys a story. And it's a story of a history professor named Sarah Stonebreaker, And Sarah... She has a grad degree from King's College and she has her PhD from Cambridge and she was well on her way down this road. But as she studied more, as she listened to lectures, she started to think about the moral implications of her atheism and she started to realize my atheism doesn't support my belief in universal human rights and the value of newborn children. It just doesn't, it doesn't support that. And she began to wonder if her atheism was actually true. And right around that time, she started to run into Christians. (laughs) Started to run into Christians and started having conversations with them. And she started to see how these Christians, they cared for the homeless. They ran community centers. They housed migrant farm workers. And as Sarah talked to them, and as she studied history, she discovered something. She discovered that her longing actually for justice, and this thing that just seemed to be in her that was pointing her to a particular good. She goes, it's not coming from my atheism. Where it's actually coming from is it's coming from the radical teachings and message of Jesus who abandoned his rights, embraced suffering, and, and chose death to save others. So Sarah put her trust in Jesus, and she is following him today. True story. True story, praise God. And so, to summarize that, the, the writer of Proverbs in chapter 14, verse 12 declared, There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. And so, Sarah she realized this. She saw the futility of the way that she was being led, and she instead chose to follow Jesus in his way. And instead of going, well, we should just determine what is good based on our leaders and on, on mass consensus, she came to believe that it is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who decides what is good. Amen? And that's the other road That is the other way that we can choose. That if the amazing claims of Jesus are true, and he wasn't just some good moral teacher 2,000 years ago, but he's actually the creator of the universe, then he created the laws of physics, and he created the laws of morality, and he made you, and he made me, and he's the only one who has the right to say what is good and what is not. Amen? And that is really good news because... Then we're not left in a world where there's nothing but just blind, pitiless indifference. And we have answers to the hard questions. We actually have answers. I want you to think about this compared to the options that are out there. What does the Bible actually tell us? The Bible actually gives us a meaningful account of where bad actually came from. And it doesn't trivialize the bad. And it doesn't say that the only way that you can get rid of the bad is to lose yourself into some void, you know, some nothingness that comes through meditation or whatever. And Christianity doesn't tie the bad to being a part of some ethnic or cultural group. It doesn't say, okay, in order for you to be good, you have to join this, this group or this ethnic group or this culture. And you guys, I think that's actually pretty crucial. And God's word gives us a meaningful account of where good comes from and how we can know good and what is not good and how we can live a good life and recognize the good person. And so guys, this is very, very compelling compared to the alternatives that are out there. And here's the thing. I wanna end with the good news. Gospel means good news. And here's the good news. It's this, that the good God took on human flesh so that he could make you and me good. That is the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus sacrificed himself to make you and me good. That is his own goodness overlaid on your life. And his good spirit coming to live inside of us, to lead us into the good life and to change us from the inside out, to transform us, to become more and more like him. Amen. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, Before I go on to just some applications here, I I just feel the need to say this. As the moral footing goes out from underneath the society, and it is, as that happens, we have an opportunity. And it's an opportunity, as Jesus says, to be a city on a hill, To be those people, that city that is built on a solid foundation, that the people of God, we know where good comes from, and we believe that God is the source of goodness, and that impacts all of our choices, all of our actions. And here's the beautiful thing. Out of that confidence in what is good, as we live out those choices and actions, it will get the attention of a world that is around us, just like it did in the Roman Empire, and just like it did in our history professor, Sarah gets people's attention. Amen? So just for some final application this morning, I've got a few things. And the first really is for us to take stock and ask a question. I just want you to reflect on this question. How am I defining what is good? So just think about your life and where you are today. And just daily, those little choices you make that say, okay, well, I'm going to choose... I think this is maybe the good thing I should do, or this is the good thing that I should do. How am I choosing those things? How am I defining what's good? And here's the question. Are you just trusting in your own wisdom to figure that out? And a lot of us are tempted to do that. I'm just smart enough. I'm I'm educated enough. I can just figure it out for myself. I can lead myself. Or we're tempted to just be influenced by the majority of our friends at school. And just go, the majority of my friends think this and believe this, or, or the majority of my coworkers are kind of here, so it sounds kind of good. So maybe, maybe I'm going to be influenced by that, or maybe it's influencers in media. And, and what's happening is you're beginning to question the goodness of God, and you're beginning to question, does he really define what is good? And I want you to remember, this was the very first temptation in the garden. This is the temptation that we all face, I think, in our, in, our, in our lives. And here's the thing. If you suspect that your feet are starting to turn from the way of Jesus to that broad path that the world is, is traveling on, let me challenge you with these words out of Psalm 34, verse 8. These simple words. It says, taste and see the Lord is good taste and see that he is good. He truly is a good, good father. It's who he is. And here's the thing. He's so good that when you start to experience him, other things that seem good around you just have lesser value. They just don't compare. In a life connected with Jesus, it fulfills us and it satisfies us. And it also, what it does is it starts to change you as you start to walk with the good God. What happens is you start to, start to see things around you in a different light and from a different perspective. And you find that your, your whole perspective on what is good begins to change. And this is like how I've heard. I've never, uh, they tell me that this is how bank tellers are trained to discover counterfeits is that they say, instead of just giving them counterfeit money, they give them real money and they're like handle lots and lots and lots of real money so that as you handle the real, you can go, this one feels just a little bit off. And so we can taste, we can see, we can touch, we can experience the good God. And so if you're kind of here this morning and you're going, okay, I've am I'm on, I've chosen Jesus, I'm on his path, but I just need... I need to know more about how to stay connected with him because the world just feels so strong out there and all the voices and all the messages just feel so strong. How do I stay tethered to Jesus and abide in him? Well, we've got lots of resources here at New Heights. I just wanna mention one this morning that's just near and dear to my heart and it's our equip classes. It's our equip classes. And we've got a class that's coming up Uh, that I've just seen, I've seen it just impact people's lives over and over and over, help them to grow deeper. It's a class called the Father Heart of God. The Father Heart of God, that God really is good. He really is a good father. And if you're going, the dates aren't on the screen. Here's what I want you to do. There's that QR code. You could just scan it right now. If you're going, I want more information. It's actually coming up March 8th and March 15th. So just in a couple of weeks on Wednesday nights, but you can scan that code. It'll take you to our registration page. You can see the, the place, the dates, the times, all that. And also along with this, there's another resource that I want you to be aware of. And we haven't done it because of COVID, but we're going to be doing it in a quick class called Salt and Light Training. And our salt and light training is really connected to this series of the questions where we're learning to have spiritual conversations with people and we're coming to understand what the barriers are in their lives in their thinking in their actions in their understandings that keep them from seeing jesus it's phenomenal training you can again scan the qr code it's coming up in a few weeks on a friday night and saturday march 10th and 11th Um, incredible training and lastly if you want to get the most out of this question series i would encourage you to grab one or both of these books. These are the books that actually are the, have been the framework that we're building this series around. And we've got these books on the table right here in the back. And here's something that's really amazing. We had someone in our congregation last week who stepped up and they said, I want to actually help to fund our body to get all the resources they need to get the most out of this series. It's amazing. So we can offer you these books for five bucks each which is really awesome. And, uh, and you go, if I can't afford five bucks, take one for free. Just take one. But here's the thing. Please read it, okay? Uh, read it if you're going to take it. And the way to use this is just read the chapter before the Sunday that that topic is, is going to be uh, taught on. Okay usually right now i I would pitch to worship in our ministry time but i've got i've just got one more thing Uh, and and this is really amazing and josh foliart was speaking to it in the announcements here but this one last application and this really is my thesis of the message that we can't be good without god that we need the good god to come and to make us good and to live inside of us and lead us into the good life and that comes through repentance it comes from us turning away from trying to play God and going, God, you're the only one who's good and I'm gonna follow you and trust you. And Josh Foliart, he mentioned that there's a revival happening right now in Asbury at the seminary in Kentucky. And we have a, a couple in our, in our church that just went out to Kentucky and spent some days there, Chris and Heather Hunt. And so what I wanna do is, is I want them to come up and I want them to share a story and to pray for us, all right? Um, I think you're gonna be super encouraged by this. So Heather, you're gonna share with us just a, just a quick kind of testimony story. And then Chris, I would just love for you just to pray for us and whatever God wants to do uh, here in our church and in Northwest Arkansas. So Heather, tell us about it.
1: Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, Chris, our five kids, and I drove out to Asbury University in Kentucky last week. As many of y'all know, there's a revival happening there. Last uh, Wednesday, February 8th, their regular chapel service started and did not stop. <laughs> Students crowded the altar to confess their sins. They ministered to one another. They wept. They laid prostrate on the floor and worshipped for days, <laughs> leaving only for food and naps and then hurrying back. When we arrived, we saw students sleeping in chairs and singing with bloodshot eyes, and they're worshiping still in Hughes Auditorium, and visitors are, it's, oh, Hughes Auditorium is overflowing with visitors from all over the country and beyond pouring in. Uh, I heard, I, I, in the room, we felt a, a gentleness, like a gentle calm, and I heard it described by many as a serenity or a sweetness, and I agree. Uh, the Bible says that the uh, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And his kind presence was in the room and people were repenting all around us. We watched people experiencing freedom from addiction and shame and anxiety and bitterness and confidence in their own accomplishments. And uh, time did not pass normally in there. Three hours felt like one hour, and people didn't want to leave. I've never seen people so eager to get into a church or so resistant to depart. Every chair was full, and people stood along the walls and up in the balcony and the, in the lobby, and the stairs outside was full. And our last night there, the two overflow chapels opened across the street, and they drew like a speaker out into the lawn so people standing outside could hear. People were... Um, The altars were crowded. People were laying in the aisles and dancing in the aisles, and there were empty bottles of anointing oil strewn across the edge of the stage, which was just a beautiful sight. Uh, We heard a sob now and then, but no shouting and no chaos. It was very orderly and calm because we serve a God of order. Exhausted musicians traded off through the day and night, and uh Sometimes the worship was just sweet and low like incense. And there was once that I had to catch my breath and hold my knees, I could just feel it. And uh, sometimes it was jubilant with dancing and clapping and jumping and surges. And there was just so much peace and joy.
2: And I have just a brief observation because if if I'm gonna be totally honest with y'all, when we got there on Saturday night, we walked into the auditorium and there was a band playing. And the first thought that came to mind, literally the first thought was, Ooh, I'm, I'm actually really thankful for New Heights. Uh, these guys, like I said, I'm just being candid. Like the the music was frankly pretty mediocre. The the preaching, the few messages, brief messages that we heard were similarly unimpressive. There was nothing fancy about anything. It, it was. It, just what it was, but I think that serves to confirm the point that the Spirit of God really was there, because there was nothing otherwise that would draw us to it. Everything was unimpressive. And what was clear was that we were there for one purpose, and that was to worship the Lord. We were there to minister to the Lord and to be in His presence. And David says in Psalm 27, the one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. The one thing that David sought was to be in the Lord's presence. And we think that the spirit would say to us, seek my presence, seek my presence. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you. We invite you and we ask that you would come. Come Holy Spirit, may you light within us a fire that can only be satisfied and satiated by your presence, Jesus. Draw us to yourself, it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. May we repent and be reconciled to you and may we see your face. May we taste and see that you are good. May we experience your pleasure in the land of the living. We ask that you would come now, be glorified, be exalted because you are worthy of our praise. In the name of Jesus, amen.
0: Amen, amen, amen. Thank you, Chris and Heather. Guys, give them a hand. Thank you guys so much. Um, our prayer teams are are starting to spread out around the room. This is our ministry time. I know we might have gone a little bit over in this service. So if you have to go grab kids, you can do that. But if you can stay and just be in the presence of God here to continue, just to bring your heart before him. It could be something in this message where you went, man, I just need to just surrender my mind to the Lord and not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of my mind. And I just want to commit again to Jesus, or or maybe you're going, I just want to follow Jesus for the first time. You could pray right where you are and just give your heart, your trust to him, or you could get prayer for anything. Our prayer teams are here. And again, we're gonna just continue to worship. Andrew and the team are gonna lead us. And and if you're like, I wanna continue in this posture or I want what's happening at Asbury, God is moving in those ways. If you've ever been to one of our Ozark worship nights, incredible, come Saturday night and join us. All right, Lord, have your way. We just wanna minister to you. We want your presence in Jesus' name.